welcome to episode three of series three of Some Essex Lads and a Paralympian. Well, so far, Tony Gray Thompson and Nathan Maguire have starred in this series, but I think we're taking showbiz to another to another level this week with uh, Jack Eyes. Now, Jack's story is pretty damn amazing. After growing up with proximal femoral focal deficiency, Jack chose the route of amputation on his right leg at 16 years old before joining Models of Diversity and getting into the fitness industry afterwards. He has since been on the catwalks of New York, become a personal trainer and was the first amputee to win Mr. England in 2017. And that's without mentioning the para canoe career, which includes a European and World Championship bronze medal. Um, Jack, I've seen quite a few quotes. Um, Like you said, it was one of the best things that you've ever had in your life when you had this amputation Mm. in, in your right leg. Yeah. Because, you know, you're growing up and body confidence was an issue. You know, you have this amputation and then you think to yourself, it's a new start, starting from scratch. Essentially, you're kind of reborn as a person. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, so I was born with a condition in my leg. It got progressively worse. The condition is, I'm going to call it PFFD for short, rather than the mouthful of the actual full name. <laughs> but it's basically a deficiency of the femur is what it was. Um, and it got progressively worse, like I said, uh, and it started to affect me physically, but alongside that, definitely mentally as well, um, definitely started to kind of knock my confidence. Um, I, uh, I'm quite a sort of practical kind of guy. I really enjoy playing sports when I was younger. I used to play football for school, used to play rugby, cricket, used to swim. Um, and I guess as my, my leg deteriorated, my condition got worse, I... Um, became a bit more challenged within sport and I lost my I didn't really know what it was at the time but now reflecting on it it was my um, my way of expression I guess my way of um, my confidence you know confidence comes from being able to do something at a reasonable standard um, and I guess I ended up feeling like I wasn't very good at anything I was quite restricted you know having a disability especially um an impairment that restricts your mobility, so your, your walking aid, um, it can feel like a bit of a ball and chain. Um, it can really kind of slow you down. It can kind of feel a bit trapped. You don't really have any freedom. There's no kind of like speed in anything that you do in terms of trying to get from A to B, even like if you're, if you're late for the bus or, you know, something little like that. Um, uh, I've always been quite tall. I'm six foot three now. Uh, growing up like I said I've always been quite tall going to the cinema was always an issue uh, so my leg was straight I couldn't bend my knee so I think you know and little things like going to the cinema you know sitting on a roller coaster going in the dodgems all that sort of thing was I wasn't able to do it I physically wasn't able to do it so you know those little dents was kind of like what really affects my mentality um, and you know watching my friends kind of grow up and go on the waltzes or whatever the situation yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I wasn't able to do it. Um, yeah, so I, I just felt really frustrated with my situation. Uh, and I had what you call elective surgery. So I, I said, I'm better off without this leg. Just just chop it off, just amputate it. Um, and yeah, absolutely. It was um, a life-changing, obviously, a life-changing decision, but definitely the best decision of my life. Um, and the way that I describe it is is almost like I was reborn. I was given a new body. I was able to... Um, do these things that I was restricted to do. Um, one of the first things that I said, I made a bit of a list. I said, when I have my leg amputated, I'm going to achieve 
this, this, and this. And top of my list was uh, was um, uh, travel. So sitting on an aeroplane, sitting on a bus with a straight leg at six foot two when you're that age or six foot three was was very, very challenging. It was very uncomfortable. So as soon as I had it amputated, um, well, five years after I had it amputated, I went traveling, I went backpacking, went to seven different countries, me and my partner. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was epic. It was really cool. There's the thing, I mean, two things to pick up on that. The first thing, six foot three. I saw a 2018 interview that you're six foot two. Have you grown an inch in the last two, three years? Do you know what? Apparently I have, yeah. I've always I'm, thought I was I'm, six I'm, foot I'm two. Top of that. <laughs> I always thought I was six foot two. And then I went for a DEXA scan and they were like, no, you're six foot three. I was like, yes, I'll take that. Fair enough. I mean, I've got a mate who's uh, who, who worked for the Paralympics and uh, he sent me a video actually of like when he did some stuff with you. Adam Bailey, his name is, I'll, I'll name drop him from a few years back. And uh, you said you were 6'2 in that. So I was going to pick that up. But you said you're 6'3 there. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the second thing to pick up on that, you know, it's a bit, it's a big sea change you've been 16. Um, but the mind, how quick was the mindset after having the surgery that you thought, you know, let's do this? Was it immediate or was there kind of a, a period between that surgery and then, you know, traveling and going to seven different continents, you know, seven different countries, continents? Was there, was there a big gap between that? So I think um, there's a little bit of a story that I kind of missed. Um, and that was, um, I, like I said, I was being affected physically and mentally. And I, even at a young age, I experienced depression. Uh, and I was at the um, uh, the prosthetic center because I used to wear um, like uh, because my leg basically stopped growing, so it was too short. So I used to wear a prosthetic that would almost like a platform shoe that would allow me to walk. And I was at the center having some work done, and my mum was at the, with me at the time. Must have been about ten or eleven, and she explained to the prosthetist that you know Jack's not very good at the minute. Um, that what can we do to cheer him up? And the guy said, Martin, his name was said, like, there's a guy next door. He calls himself a one-legged stuntman. He was born pretty much the same condition as Jack, had his leg amputated when he was 18. And he's just come back from filming Saving Brother Ryan with Steven Spielberg. Do you want to go and meet him? And obviously my mum jumped at the opportunity and I, I met him. His name's Louis Brown, so. Um, and anyway, yeah, we formed quite a good relationship. He's He was kind of in his 40s at the time. Like I said, I was about... 12 or so but he in, actually no he must have been younger than that I'm probably doing his service he must have been about 30 yeah mid 30s I say um and then yeah he, he invited us around to his house and he was showing us all these kind of props and these photos because obviously uh, camera phones weren't a thing back then so he was showing us all these photos of him um on all these uh, sets all these uh, scenes where he was kind of being blown up on the beach and like I said in Saving Bright Ryan he was the figure of the mummy he had made a wooden leg a twisted wooden leg he was uh, been over in America filming with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And for me, that was like, he's using his disadvantage, his disability as an advantage to live an epic life. And it was really inspiring for me. And it was the first bit of inspiration I've kind of really received since realizing and understanding that I was disabled. Um, so anyway, so from the age of about 12 onwards, I was like, I want my leg cut off. I want my leg cut off. I just kept saying it, you know, I kept going to the, um, the surgeons and they kept offering me different bone lengthening conditions. Well, so, gap to being 16, like did it, how did it take a long time for that to happen then? So they originally said 18. They said you have to finish growing to get the measurements right. Because obviously if you cut the bone too short and it doesn't grow, then you don't have the right control of the prosthetic limb. So they want to get the measurements right. So they said you have to wait until you finish growing. And like I said, I, I was what well, I thought was six foot two at the time. So I was already always quite tall. Um, 
I don't know when I stopped growing. It must have been like 14. Um, so, yeah, 16. Well, clearly, clearly, you haven't stopped growing, giving you six for three now. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, 16. I said, come on, like, let's go for it. And they agreed. Um, yeah, so, so I was very prepared for it. I was very ready. So to answer your question, um, it didn't take a huge amount of adjustments because I was very, very excited. There's pictures of me just about to go into theatre and I've got my thumbs up to the camera. Like my mum took a picture of me and I'm smiling. Like, I'm, I'm desperate to go and have my leg cut off because I, was, I felt so restricted. I felt so, um, a, like such an alien leg. That's what it was. It, was. it disgusted me. My leg disgusted me. It really did. Um, so I finally had it amputated. And I thought the process was going to be quick. I thought recovery was going to be quick. Young, naive, whatever. Uh, discharged myself after five days. Caught an infection. Went back in for two weeks. All the rest of it. So, yeah, it was slower than I wanted it to be. Um, but the process of adjusting, I think I'd already done, probably for the couple of years before that. Um, there was obviously the practical learning side of wearing a leg um, that had a, a bendy knee. Um, yeah. I was about to say, you got the physical adjustment, but you got the mental adjustment as well. And it kind of like, you've had this leg for such a long time and now suddenly you don't. And it's literally, it's it's over kind of in in, in one day, in one night when you've had that surgery. And yeah. then I talk about, you know, building your life up from scratch because I read a few of the interviews and you, you know, you described it as essentially having a second life and um, kind of like fitness, you know, and your background, if anyone looks at your Instagram, like they're going to figure that out pretty damn quickly. Um, like where, what was the timeline between kind of having this surgery and then kind of wanting to become kind of who you are now in terms of fitness and, you know, yeah. being a personal trainer and then doing what you've done in that kind of realm? So there was quite a, there was a weird sort of stage where, you know, I really thought that I was just going to have my leg amputated have a leg that then bends and then just walk normally. That's what I kind of thought, you know, that's that's what I was desperate for. And I also had it in my head that I really wanted to join an agency that allowed me to work as a one-legged stuntman. That, that was my goal. That's what I wanted to achieve. Um, but when I then caught that infection and my re rehabilitation kind of slowed right down, um, I actually spent New Year's Eve in hospital on my own at age 16. And I can always remember like the, the, the nurses, they were like celebrating, clinking their glasses together. And, you know, I was lying there sort of 16 years old, feeling pretty sorry for myself. And I don't really know what happened, but I had a bit of an epiphany and I was kind of like, what can I do with my life? And I did a bit of research um, and there was, an, there was an amputee firefighter. He was below the knee. And I wanted to be the first amputee above knee firefighter. Um, and I spent about three years training for that. That was my pure focus. I just wanted to get into the fire service. My stepdad was uh, an officer in the um, in the fire service, so I, I've heard all his stories. I've seen him. You know, I was brought up kind of watching him go on shouts and go off in the fire engine and all the rest of it. So I was very inspired by that. What was the big attraction of the fire service? Was it just yeah. being there for people, or was it just kind of the thrill, like the adrenaline rush of just being in that situation? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably the adrenaline rush. Um, I like the, so I think, you know, if I could choose, if I had an Argos book in front of me of like what my life would look like, I'd have been in the military. I really like that camaraderie. I really like that action. I really like that teamwork. Um, yeah, and I think, like I said, I was very inspired by my stepdad who was in the fire service. Um, and just hearing his very heroic stories that he'd, he'd kind of 
I don't know what it was that really attracted me though. And I, I don't know, because they were gruesome stories. <laughs> they were pretty rough stories. I don't know. And it's got pretty gruesome stories as well. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, so that's that's what kind of started my fitness journey. Joined the gym, started using the gym, uh, started using the equipment, um, really enjoyed it. I then became um, in 2008, I qualified as a gym instructor. Um, and then 2010 as a personal trainer. So yeah, it, it really was like, I did really enjoy the gym. Um, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed, uh, it was the first kind of place, especially after, definitely after my amputation, but it was the first place where I really made progress and I could see my confidence grow. I could see that what I was doing, I was growing as a person. about like 18 and like I read a report that you, you can have described it as being ripped apart by vampires and eaten alive by by werewolves um like specialized working with amputees that agency that was a fitness agency I'm right in saying no like, no or was that like a small yeah. circus is yeah. I know you had the London 2012 kind of yeah. um thing with being part of the ceremony there as well was that kind of related to that sure so um to I can't put my finger on exactly when I was going for the fire service. There was like a three year period where I was going for the fire service, pretty much from my amputation upwards. Um, and then, like I said, 2008, became a gym instructor. Um, but I didn't start working with the agency to, till 2010. The work with the agency, it was a company that specialized in just amputees. So it was an agency full of amputees. Uh, we worked alongside the military doing reenactment scenarios, like part of their medical training. It was like a desensitized station before they got sent off to war. Uh, but the other side of it was we did the film work where we were uh, used in war films uh, being blown up or horror films being ripped apart by sort of werewolves and vampires and eaten by birds and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so, yeah, that, and luckily being a personal trainer, you know, you become self-employed. So and the agency was also self-employed work. So I was able to do the both. Uh, it made it pretty complex, like my kind of situation, but I was able to kind of do quite a lot of things. Um, and I guess that's why, yeah, you reeled off quite a few things that I've achieved. I mean, I'm really proud of all of it, but the only reason I was able to achieve it is because I've never been employed. I've always been self-employed. I've always done my own thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll get um, the, the London 2012 thing, like when I was looking at like what you've done stands out amongst most things i mean that how was that for you kind of you know with training with with the circus you're training that it's high intensity yeah. training from what i saw um mm. being involved in that opening ceremony for the uh, for the olympics yeah absolutely so again it was the, is this particular agency that um got me the job well got me the audition for the uh, paralympic opening ceremony job uh, it, the, the the trainers were part of hoxton square circus school in london um, and we used to train with them for was it three or four months. Um, and we basically we lived in London. I think there was, there was about, um, there was about 120 people that applied for this, this role um, of being in the opening ceremony. And then 50 of us got it and it was based on fitness. It was, so there was a lot of sort of physical um, challenges we had to do. We had to climb a rope. We had to do like a leg raise to like a trapeze. Um, all sorts of like, physical activity. So 
yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be able to pass all of that. Um, but like I said, I was, you know, I was doing agency work and I was doing personal training. And then I was offered this full-time role with the with the circus. So, you know, I had to make quite a big decision, but I went for it. And again, you know, I'm so proud that I did. I'm so glad that I did go for it. It was an incredible experience. And I, I believe that because of experience being in the in the middle of an arena, 80,000 people, including the Royal Family and Channel 4, has now given me the taste for the limelight to, to be a, um, an individual event athlete. I was about to say, preparing for catwalks in New York is certainly a good way to kind of go back to what you did in that arena. I mean, like, how, what, like, like describe the atmosphere, like, actually being in that stadium. Because, I mean, I was lucky enough to get tickets to the, um, the relays for the Olympics, and I got to see some of the Paralympic events, kind of like blind football as mm. well, like, outside of the stadium. Um, like, being really lucky, like, growing up really close to, like, the Olympic and Paralympic Park. Like, the atmosphere... I remember watching it on TV. It, it was electric. And I guess for you being in a very weird kind of environment that, you know, you have to compete. But are, are you aware of the crowd in that respect? Yeah, you're very aware of the crowds. Um, for me, it was my first performance in front of a live audience. It was the first time I kind of, well, probably the first time I'd ever really stood on stage. Uh, you know, it was, it was effectively what it was. And then I had to climb a 10-foot rope and I had to dangle from it without a harness and then do this big routine. I had to remember the routine. Like I, I, I'm not a natural, <laughs> I'm not a natural dancer. So to remember a routine with certain beats and choreography or whatever was, um, was pretty challenging itself in front of 80,000 people, like I said. So it was definitely challenging. I got a lot from it. It was electric. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. I think again, another kind of life changing moment for me. Because you started then, you know, you had this work with models of diversity as well. And this is kind of the catapult in terms of not just you kind of going into modeling, but then also the body confidence with that as well. Because I'm guessing they gave you not just the platform, but they gave you kind of the mental tools to actually help you through that period. And, you know, I'm guessing like from being a, a five, six, seven year old to being unhappy with your right leg to then being part of a, a diversity model program it's a big jump from you know that to where you were then yeah absolutely you're absolutely right I think so <clears throat> excuse me after 2012 um I I really put the feelers out in terms of what's next for me I, I had a taste for the limelight I really wanted to do something amazing um and I got in touch with models of diversity I spoke to them and my my kind of like modeling career started with just the fitness side of things because it complemented my job as a personal trainer. I was able to then use it for marketing. Um, you know, 2015, I got on the front cover of Men's Health because of it. Uh, I've done like uh, Men's Fitness, uh, Healthy for Men um, magazines. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed the fitness side of things. But uh, Angel Sinclair, who's the um, CEO of Models Diversity, she said to me, look, fashion industry is, is missing something here. You, disabled people are not represented at all you know even in high street fashion at that point 2012 2013 disabled people were not represented at all so that's when we started to really approach these designers uh, approach these um catwalk um directors and yeah it, it was pretty nuts I, I got sent over to milan um to listen in to a, a conference and it was all in italian uh, so i had no idea what was going on it was very passionate 
very passionate, very much passionate Italians standing up and shouting at each other. And they basically, I had an interpreter like telling me what was going on. And it was somebody was trying to project the idea of using disabled people on the catwalk. And other people were saying, no, 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 this is, you know, the, the catwalk is like ballet. You wouldn't put disabled people in, in ballet. Um, They're talking about perception, like where disability was. That's, that's it, yeah. Been a yeah. Bit of a wake up call for you. I guess you kind of already knew that, but I guess uh, kind of, especially in kind of, you know, you're talking about London, Paris, Milan, New York, kind of the four major kind of fashion capitals of the world. And mm. like, it's a big thing in those cities to kind of be accepted, I guess. Yeah. So fashion's obviously born in Milan. Um, so that's why the conference was there. Uh, and we won the conference. And then we went from Milan to New York. And that's when I walked on the, on the catwalk. And I was the first amputee to ever walk on New York Fashion Week catwalk. Uh, and it was, you know, the response was incredible. I had people from all over the world, people from like Jamaica, like everyone messaging me on Instagram, on, sorry, on Instagram, Facebook at the time. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty, pretty nuts. It was great. It was good. It was, and it was um, the first, um, the first chip towards paving the way of um, getting people noticed, uh, disabled people more noticed, I guess. Because I guess now, I mean, one thing that I've already picked up with kind of some of the interviews that you did um, recently as well, you kind of said like, when you were growing up, there weren't many role models that you kind of thought, well, I want to be like in the position that I was, whereas now you kind of say you want to be the role model for younger generations kind of coming through who may look like me. And I want to stand out and be that person that they want to say, I want to be you, essentially. Um, the New York kind of thing, like, firstly, how was New York? Like, what was the atmosphere like kind of around the city? Kind of what was the vibe like for you? But also, looking back on that now, do you think that was a big moment in terms of that message about inspiring the next generation, kind of not even in sport, just generally in disability, in fashion? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely was. I don't think New York would have happened if it wasn't for the noise that the Channel 4 Paralympics made after 2012. Because obviously the uh, New York was after that. New York Fashion Week was after 2012 Paralympic opening ceremony. Um, and I, I believe that the, um, yeah, London 2012 really did open a lot of doorways in terms of like challenging the perception of disability. Um, and you know, there was a real spin-off from that. And that's when we were able to then use it within the fashion industry. The reception I got from New York Fashion Week was was incredible. Like the world's media was there. There's a picture, I might post on social media actually, but it's like a wall of cameras. It is just like, I, I don't know how many hundreds of photographers just all taking photos of this particular catwalk. And it's, um, there was, there was quite a few different sort of disabled models um, a couple of wheelchair users, a couple of amputees, and it was good. It was great, and we had, and there were big name designers as well. Like one of the guys that I walked for, Antonio Erzi. Uh, he's a, again an Italian designer. Um, he worked with Armani for twelve years or so. He was Lady Gaga's and uh, I think Rihanna's um, designer as well. He's done some creative stuff with them. But he's a big name, and he was supporting us. Um, yeah, it was incredible. So the response was was immense. And, you know, you talk about like, the cameras there. How did that kind of compare to the, the stadium in London? Is it, Was it kind of the similar kind of pressure? Because, you know, I guess, I mean, the thing is in London, I guess, that although you were kind of, you know, in the air, mm. New York was kind of more up and front. It was more kind of to the face. Do you think there was more pressure kind of with New York than there was kind of London in terms of the, the event? 
almost. Yeah, do you know what? There's this really weird relationship that I've got with catwalks because catwalks is strange, right? You you have maybe a day to rehearse and all you're doing is walking up and down and all they do is they get you to walk on the left or walk on the right, turn around, come back in the middle. You have to do like three clicks at the end as in poses and then turn and that's it. And you just have to look as as good looking as possible or you just have to be as, you know, um, model-like as possible. No expression. Whereas like the Paralympic opening ceremony, I spent three or four months training really hard for that. Like if I had failed, I would have fallen 10 meters from a rope. <laughs> Whereas if I had failed on the catwalk, I just tripped up and gone on, gone on again, you know? So in terms of the pressure, because of the amount of training that went behind the opening ceremony, like it was, it was very different. Um, but the, but, but then you didn't really have this sense of like being a celebrity almost. Whereas when you're at New York Fashion Week, like you are treated like very well. You're treated like a top end, high end model. Like, yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was good fun for me. Talking about being a celebrity as well. I mean, you, you talk about um, kind of on, on, on a global stage because then the Mr. England competition came along in, in 2017 and, you know, the headlines were all written afterwards about how you were the first amputee to ever win the Mr. England competition, but then am I right in saying that you couldn't be part of the Mr. World competition and then the guy who finished second actually won the event for Mr. World, if I'm yeah, right in saying that. That's actually a true story. Yeah, that's a true story. Uh, <laughs> you that now, like, that you could have been Mr. England and Mr. World if you actually you could have, would have been available for it. I think, like, you know, there's a, um, a repeating theme here of me kind of making these decisions, um, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, you know? So, you know, yeah, 2017, I uh, went for the title of Mr. England and I was also going for selection for the World Championships with the Paralympics. Uh, sorry, with the um, para canoe, the British canoeing. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make selection for the para, para canoe uh, for the World Championships in 2017, but I was put forward for the Mr. England and then I went on to win the title. So then... The Mr. World was supposed to happen in 2018. It, the, the dates got postponed four times uh, because it was out in Manila in um, um, Philippines. Um, and the dates got moved and moved and moved. And then it turns out that the dates were going to be in line with when we were supposed to be in Tokyo for the familiarization camp, getting ready for last year's Tokyo uh, Games or next year's Tokyo, whatever. But so I made the decision. I said, look, I can't attend a Mr. World. I need to prioritize my, my career and my passion. All my energy is going into being a Paralympian. I want to be a Paralympian. You know, I, I want to be selected. I, I feel it's really important that I go to Tokyo. Well, unfortunately for me, I didn't then get selected for the familiarization camp. Yeah, I know. So then, uh, yeah, I didn't have either. Um, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. In a, uh, in a uh, the best scenario, I could have been a Paralympian and I could have been Mr. World, but it's a smaller scale. But what that reminds me of is when, um, at the end of our university course, that um, we were nominated for a magazine award, and um, I was part of student radio, so we were nominated for one of our um shows, uh, was nominated for a national award at the O2 Arena, and I chose to go to the magazine awards in Hammersmith. And you can probably guess what happened. We didn't win the Hammersmith one. And then it, the, the one where I would have had a chance at speaking on the Indigo stage at the O2, we won that award and I wasn't available for it. Um, 
and they got to meet all the producers at the BBC, ITV. Um, so yeah, I kind of get how you feel on a smaller scale, but I kind of get how you feel like on that. Um, like talking about Mr. England though, um, you know, did you think that going into it, I mean, was it something that you firstly always wanted to be a part of or did it kind of come coincidentally? And secondly, when you were in it, did you think that you would actually have a chance of, you know, winning it? Yeah, sure. So no, it, I'd never heard of it until, <clears throat> excuse me, until I think maybe early, early 2017 or maybe late 2016. I was basically at the NEC Clothes Show in Birmingham, giving a talk on body confidence. Um, and then I was just approached by a couple of talent spotters who were saying, look, we're looking for the next Mr. England. You need to apply. Um, and I, like I said, I applied, didn't think anything of it. A couple of months later, I received an email saying, yeah, come along. Uh, the auditions in Leicester, I was training in Nottingham at the time, you know, they're not too too far apart. And I just kind of went for it and it kind of built. I didn't really know what I was going for. Um, my agent at the time told me that it would be really good for my portfolio. It'd be really good for my online presence. It'd be really good to kind of get my message out there um, and to, you know, hopefully improve my career um, as a fashion model or fitness model, um, also a personal trainer public speaker, whatever. So I took the opportunity. I decided to go for it. Um, when I was kind of going through the the kind of audition process, so it's, it's about a three-month process before the actual final night. So you have to do like, um, there's lots of kind of areas of the Mr. England. You have to raise money for charity. You have to, there's a social media around where you have to um, share a picture and people have to like and share it. And the person with the most likes and shares wins that round. There's a public vote round where people have to text in. There's uh, a photogenic round. Um, there was a general um, knowledge round. Uh, what else was there? there was, and then second pub. A general knowledge round. Yeah, like general question. Is that the right word? It sounds like a pub quiz. Yeah, pretty much it was. <laughs> but all about the Mr. England, obviously. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, what else was there? And then there was like the open shirt round, so they just wanted to see your abs. And then you had to do like a tuxedo round. Then there was uh, questions and answers on stage. You have to speak in front of an audience. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot to it. I've probably missed a few things out. But yeah, there was quite a lot to it. Um, it's like a three-month process. So I guess I was aware that I ticked a lot of the boxes. Um, you know, I was probably slightly older um, to some of the other sort of competitors. Um, I already had a decent online presence. Um, I'd already had quite a lot of exposure and experience doing catwalks, doing modelling. Uh, even, oh, there was a fitness side of it as well. So I had to do a fitness test. So obviously, like, I was, I was decent, uh, in decent shape. Also, I had the, the sob story of the leg as well, which really stood out. So I kind of, and I was able to speak in front of a live audience as well. I had that exposure. So... I ticked a lot of boxes. So yeah, I, I was, I was kind of confident, quietly confident, I want to say, um, that I had a good chance of winning. The reaction I presume at the start is, you know, this is the first amputee who's ever won it yeah was that literally all you got or was it like you know people actually kind of looked at your speeches they looked at you know your abs that they thought you know that actually had a part to play in it more than just the facts that you kind of 
had, as you just said, you know, the sob story of the right leg mm. being amputated as well. Yeah, I think like, you know, if, if they chose me just because I've got one leg, then that's that's their fault. They shouldn't have done that. Um, like I said, I believe I tick a lot of boxes. Um, so being the role of Mr. England is representing England at certain events. It's stepping on stage, giving motivational speeches. It's um, attending sort of press conferences um, and being a uh, representative, being a um, an influencer, I guess. So, yeah, like I said, it, I ticked a lot of boxes in that sense. Um, yeah, and, and do you know what? And this is where I, this is why my relationship with fashion and my relationship with Mister England, how I feel about it, is very very different compared to a physical challenge or sport. Physical challenge or sport, it's a clear win and it's based on your performance. Whereas something like a competition that's based on three judges or, or you know, a catwalk model where you're selected just because of how you look, it's, it's, it's someone's opinion and that doesn't sit too comfortably with me. Um, yeah, yeah. Because then... Um... You know, talking about social media presence is, you know, your Instagram page is, is pretty large. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of Instagram page where you can actually like engage with people kind of, you know, not just in fitness, but because you've got that platform, you've got that essentially brand, I guess, in a way that, you know, that you can actually go to people around the world and actually say, you know, I have done what I have done you know, look at, look at my page. I'm a personal trainer. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this, you know, having that social media presence, how important is that to you at the minute? Uh, it comes in peaks and troughs. So I think it was very, very important to me. Um, my whole entire life, um, my appearance, how I come across has been my business. So as a personal trainer, you have to stand out as fit, you know, tidy, um, approachable. You know, as a model, you have to be, you have to arrive, um, you know, almost like clean shaven, in good shape, you know, well groomed. Um, Mr. England, obviously, everyone's watching you. So yeah, my my entire career is around how how I come across. So when I was um, when I was kind of going through this this period of you know, the personal training, the Mr. England, the modeling, my online presence was, was very, very important because it was, it was getting me jobs. It was getting me money. Um, it was uh, a reputation, I guess. Now as an athlete, it's, or I should say last year and the year before, it probably wasn't quite as, I didn't see it as being quite so important. Actually, I found it a little bit distracting. Um, I found it quite hard to post certain things uh, without it becoming coming across as cheesy, um, you know, most of my followers I gained through modelling. So most of my followers want to see professional pictures. They want to see me going off and doing things. They want to see me with my top off, whatever. Now that I'm an athlete, I don't get so many professional pictures. Um, my my job is performance rather than aesthetics. So I'm yeah, trained in a very different way. Um, I don't look at aesthetics at all. I, I'm not in the same shape. Um, so I, and I, I'm a lot bigger, I'm about 10 kilograms heavier than I was back then. So, you know, even doing like the fashion modeling, it, it just wouldn't look right, I don't think. So, yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Um, 
Because I guess authenticity goes a long way as well. And it's a weird dynamic social media, isn't it? That sometimes it can be amazing, it can be brilliant, and it can be the platform to success. But at other times, there is the pressure. I guess you've had this pressure of, I'm guess I'm presuming, you know, you're in training and you know there are times when you feel like you have to post certain images or certain types of images especially in instagram to kind of please the following in training but also then the moments that you can get distracted in training that you think you have to post something let's say you haven't posted something in a week and you're thinking well do i need to concentrate in another week's training or do i need to kind of go on social media and review the situation i mean i guess then looking at um you know, comments, if you get a comment that, you know, that's saying you're not in shape, or as you think you are, or you get a comment that, you know, that you need to be doing this, 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 or you should be recommended um, another training set, even though you've got, let's say one professionally. Um, do you take those comments to heart as well? It's quite a big bag that. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I've done full circle. So I am actually now quite involved with social media. Uh, and one of the reasons is because um because, because I believe that Paracanoe deserves a more, um, how am I going to say this? It deserves a better uh, reception. It reserves more attention. You know, we are, you know, very strong, very powerful athletes. Um, it's a 200 meter, it's exciting. It's, you know, it's an adrenaline uh, pumping race. You know, the, if you look at athletics, they get, they get lots and lots of attention. Like 200 meters is a big one. Uh, whereas we're a 200 meter sprint and, you know, hardly anyone turns up to our regattas. So I feel like now that I'm part of British canoeing, I would like to get that out there more. Um, I feel that, you know, almost to like finish my timeline is by talking about me being an athlete now. So I kind of only really post about fitness. Um, I don't get quite so much engagement with that because like I said, a lot of my followers are through the, um, through the modeling side of things, but um Remind me the last bit of your question. <laughs> Sorry. Just in terms of like the comments. Um, comments yeah, that's it. yeah. Like yeah. if you get do you take them to heart or I used to. I used to take them to heart a lot. I have now that I'm not so intense about my appearance, uh, it's quite easy just to brush it off because it's like I'm on a world class program. I'm following, you know, the coach's advice. I've got an SNC coach, I've got a physio, you know, I've got sports psychologists looking after me, I've got a head coach, I've got my coach, I've got athletes around me, teammates around me. Like I'm quite protected in that sense. Whereas before, you know, I was self-employed. Everything I was doing was led by me and it was quite precious and fragile. So if I had a comment about what I was doing, it was a direct threat at me. Or that's how I perceived it. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned sports psychology there. I want to talk about the mental side of kind of competing. I mean, you know, the, the journey that you've, you've taken to get into, to, into para canoeing, you know, you, you've been involved in, in wheelchair basketball and kind of that, that background kind of sorts itself out. But the mental state of where you are now, I'm guessing even compared to when you were kind of going through kind of the New York stuff, which was a big adrenaline rush, the London 2012 stuff was a big adrenaline rush. And I'm guessing it was kind of now when you are training and when you are kind of competing, especially kind of training for Tokyo, that you are thinking about kind of a timeline of events more than just a singular moment in time. Is that a fair reflection of kind of what the situation's like now for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, with, with the psychology aspect as well, um, you know, where are you now? I mean, is sports psychology as big as a thing as they, they say it is at an elite level? 
sports psychology is massive. Um, you have to be prepared for it. You have to want it. Um, they can't just like say, right, you need to follow this because it won't work. You, you have to be, uh, um, you have to want to absorb it. You have to want to be involved with sports psychology. Uh, I'm, I'm really lucky that we've got a great um, sports psych. Uh, he's worked on, have you read the book Chimp Paradox? I have heard of it. I have never read it though. It's a great book. It's a really good book. So he helped to, he worked, well, I'm probably going to get this completely wrong. He worked alongside the guy who wrote that, basically. So he he practiced those theories. He practiced those studies. Uh, I buy into it a lot. I think it really works. In fact, I was meeting with um, my, my psych today. Uh, we check in probably sometimes every week, every other week, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's just the things that we work on is um, emotional regulation, um, stress, ma- stress management, um, yeah, that, that sort of thing, really. So how you react to a certain situation. Is that sort of thing? I mean, one thing that I know, I'm a big Man United supporter, one thing I know that United have been doing in training recently is that they have kind of training sessions based on emotional responses to bad decisions against them. Mm-hmm. So like a referee, will, a coach would be a referee and they'd actually purposely make um, a player go off the pitch, even if it's a yellow card offence, or they would purposely kind of um, create a situation where there, there would be a brawl and it's how the players respond to kind of that situation as well is that very similar in terms of what you have as well that they will train you emotionally for hypothetical situations in a big tournament let's say or yeah yeah so we, we um we do a lot of like threat perception work uh, talking about what you can control what you can't control uh, and then we do uh, like pressure cooker situations as well where we'll do like a, um a mock um race and then I deliberately do things to annoy us so they'll be talking to us when we're trying to get ready or they'll like hide one of our paddles or you know do something to our boat or even they might say like ready set go and then they'll say right false start false start everyone back to the start line it's just that sort of stuff just to really kind of like see how you respond to these sort of situations because it's all real things that could happen and I'm guessing you know like you must be thinking you're so relieved to have that overall because 20 years ago 30 years ago that might not have been the case whereas now you've got that yeah absolutely yeah and even with like you know the physio the support that we've got that has come on leaps and bounds the the strength conditioning support that we get we really do have like a you know we've got lifestyle support as well we we really do have a power team behind quickly because um david weatherall who i did the podcast with he had a sports psychologist called tim pitt who used to work at man city and he said to david that he set up a, a map of the universe in his room and kind of gave him a table tennis ball in the perspective of you know this is how big this ball is this is how big a table is a town is a city is earth is and, and, and the planets um in terms of the perspective side of kind of what you're doing you know it's not life and death but you know if you're in the army for example then it would be so you've got I guess that background of that you could have been in the military but you are doing sports so even if you finish outside of a medal position you know that it's not the end of the world because you've had that kind of realization that it could have been a different career for you absolutely yeah definitely definitely so we do quite a a lot of work on um like your plan b 
it just helps you with a bit of like mental resilience. So you're absolutely right in terms of like looking at perspective. Like this is all we do is race from A to B as fast as we can. And at the time, if you're not selected, like I wasn't selected for the Tokyo familiarization camp, my whole world collapsed. Like my future wasn't clear. Like it was, it was devastating. It was devastating. Like, especially because I had turned down a situation of going to Mr. World because, you know, all of my sort of teammates were going off to Tokyo and I, I thought I deserved to go and, you know, situations like that. And then it's like, what do you do? Who are you? Who is Jack Ayres? Like what, what happens? And, and this kind of links into why I've started my social media presence again, because you need things in the background. Like I am not identified just by para canoe. Like, um, it's important that I keep hold of some of my hobbies. It's important. So I do, I did a lot of personal training, as I've already said, uh, when I moved from Bournemouth to, I actually moved to Sheffield. Um, and I lived there for a little while. When I moved, um, I parked my personal training business, but I put some online. So I've got some clients that were online. Um, and then again, sort of 2018, I kind of parked that thinking, now I want to focus all my energy just into being an athlete. And then, like I said, like, you know, last year or whenever it was, was I didn't get selected. and I had nothing to fall back on. Nothing. I had nothing going on. Like I'd moved over 200 miles away from my friends. I didn't have a personal training business. I wasn't a model anymore. I wasn't going to the Mr. World. Like, like I said, who am I? I haven't got any hobbies. I'm not. Yeah, whatever. So, so it's really important you work on your plan B. So for me, my plan B, um, like I said, I'm back in Bournemouth now. I've got all my friends down there. Love being by the ocean. Love going diving. Love being in the sea. Um, I've started my online personal training business again. I've done a little bit of modeling. Been working with Gymshark. Been working with other companies like Dry Road, whatever. Um, I've got, yeah, just other things going on. I've got a product, a gym, gym product that I've just released, TX3. Um, there's just things going on in the background that's not taxing in terms of draining my energy. But I know that if whatever happens in selection in April, if it doesn't work out, life's still good. I can still crack on. I can still have a good life. I think you just, yeah. I mean, I think the thing to say from that is you're talking about energy and that the things that it, you've got in the background aren't taxing on you. That, you know, they are, there is a balance overall that there's nothing kind of which is going to distract you kind of, that you have a, you're having a plan B, but it's a plan B which allows you to fulfil the plan A mm, um, yeah. still in that in that situation. And you know that that plan A being you know the, the para canoeing kind of career. I mean, you, your record speaks for itself. The first international season racing, you know, bronze medals. It's not a bad start in terms yeah. of you know competing on an international stage. You have got the Lee Valley White Water Rafting Centre as a training camp, I presume as well. Um, so we, we do flat water racing. So we're on a regatta lake. So we don't do white water. It's a 200 meter sprint on a regatta oh, lake. Oh, right. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're based here in in um, Nottingham at the National Water Sports Centre, home of Pierpoint. It's just a, it's a big lake. Um, it's a big uh, regatta course, I should say. 2000 meter regatta course. Um, so that's where we train. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of the competing though, like bronze medals, how was that because you know you're missing out on obviously selection and then 2018 you, you smash it really um in terms That's of yeah. yeah yeah so obviously 2017 didn't get selected at all 2018 i was selected over a couple of different races for world cup world championships and then europeans as well uh medaled at two of them 
Um, and yeah, it, it was a great year. It really, really was a good year. Um, and it, I was lucky because then it put me on to a decent amount of funding. Um, and it was at this point where I decided to focus, put all my eggs into one basket and just focus on power canoe, which, you know, I think I kind of had to go through that process. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It was even like competing internationally. So canoeing and kayaking here within the UK, it doesn't have a lot of attention. That's what I said at the start of this podcast. It doesn't have a lot of attention. Um, but if you go to like a country like Hungary, like it's their national sport. It's huge. Like, the, the crowds are like in their thousands. Obviously, it's like lush weather. Um, the guys are absolutely shredded. Like most of them like canoe with their tops off, like abs out. People got cowbells like ringing. Like it, the, the, the atmosphere is... Nice, nice. It really is. And it, it makes you realise kind of how big the actual sport is, especially outside of the UK. Um, yeah, it's cool. And I guess that's the thing to you now. It's, it's, it's kind of with, with Tokyo, obviously, in the horizon. It's now kind of the stage where you want to get that sport to that kind of level of um, advertisement and do you think that that's achievable? I really hope it is I really hope it is achievable Um, I don't see why not it's just how it's uh, presented to the media it's just how it's presented to the public Um, I feel like you know us within there's 17 of us in the team I feel like we all try we all do our bit in terms of a social media presence talking about British canoe and talking about our sport, 200 meter sprint. Um, and we are getting more and more people start to arrive at these national regattas. Um, actually, st- since stand up paddleboarding has come in. So they now do 200 meter and 500 meter stand up paddleboarding races. So that's brought in low, a, a completely different um, ray of spectators. Um, so it's, it's cool. It is growing for sure. Yeah, that style of racing is growing. And I'm, I'll go back to like the media coverage of London 2012 and kind of the you know what Channel Four did, and you know you look at like the F1 coverage now. Billy Munger, kind of if you've seen kind of him, um, you know a- a- amputated leg, and he's kind of part of that that national coverage um, as well for kind of F1 generally. Um, looking past Tokyo, then in terms of you know the coverage, if if it is possible to kind of replicate that, like. What, how would you kind of um, pre- present, you know, para canoeing in the future? Is there anything that Channel 4 could do which would actually make it bigger and better, kind of like athletics and kind of like um, cycling and I'd probably say rowing as well to that fact? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Do you know what? I think, I think if somebody could come along, a, a decent videographer was to come along and film a day in a life of para canoe, I think you would be shocked. We've got a guy, he can do a pull-up, a chin-up, a neutral grip, with 90 kilograms around his legs. Like, seven years ago, he broke his back. He couldn't even walk. And then he's learned, through paddling, he's learned the connection back into his legs. It was a partial break. He's got the connection back into his legs, and he started to walk with sticks. Or he was in a wheelchair, I think, the first time I met him. He started walking with sticks, and now he's walking. He carries his boat. Like I said, he does chin-ups with 90 kilograms around his legs. Like, like the guys on the Paralympic tee, on the paracanoe team are insanely strong insanely fit explosive like you yeah it's inspiring so it's inspiring for me to be around and i've only been there sort of two or three uh, three or four years um so yeah so i I think in terms of presenting it to the public to get people's attention i think a day in a life of paracanoe would be insane um 
but also yeah just more coverage of the actual racing because the racing's over and done with in you know 45 to 50 seconds like that's all a race is so it's, it's pretty like fast pretty adrenaline I was going to say, yeah, meters, um, won bulk at that world record in, in Berlin in the World Champs in 09 and like the media response from that. Maybe that will be the that will be a moment. It will be a world record getting smashed in in the future that kind of elevates it to the next level on, on that scale. But in terms of the sprint, in, you know, that you've got something which I think is tangible um, yeah. that people can kind of relate to it in a, in a way that anyone can do it. It's very easy. Um, to kind of to be in, 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 in uh, Paralympics and Olympics, but in terms of it's a short sprint, it's not a 10,000 meter kind of or 2,000 meter regatta. You're not going across the whole of the regatta. So, um, yeah, and I hope the podcast as well that, you know, just speaking yeah. to you here kind of elevates that in terms of the media coverage. Um, just finishing off, Jack, um, talking about Tokyo then, training wise, how's that all going? You're in a hotel room at the minute, but um, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. off, I guess, in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah it's been a bit nuts so like i said we were living in sheffield um but uh, i had a property in bournemouth unfortunately those tenants moved out and i couldn't sell my property which is why i've ended up back in bournemouth but training back here in nottingham means i've been in, living in a hotel so it's, it's a little bit complicated training itself was going good um we have our, our year is broken into four separate bits we've got gp1 gp2 sp1 sp2 so we're just moving into GP2 at the minute, um, which is like general prep too. Um, so yeah, I probably shouldn't go into too much detail what all that means just because I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. But yeah, training is really good. Basically, the winter is about just kind of building the engine, building the workload capacity. Um, so it's just a lot of hard work. As we kind of move into like the spring, that's when we start looking at a bit more speed, um, getting the, the rate up, the, the um, stroke rate up. Um, but yeah, like I said, we've got like, we, we track with like GPS. Um, yeah, it, it's going good. It's going really good. You can't, have you got like a qualification point any any time soon as well? Our first qualification point this year is selection for the Paralympics, which is April. So that's a pretty, is that, so that's a one-off essentially, right? Seeing as we didn't even race last year at all, like pretty much two years off of racing, straight into the first ever, first race in two years. Not with that. I know, man. It's going to be. Yeah. Where's that? Is that where is that in Nottingham as well? It'll be in Nottingham, yeah. Come along, go have a look, mate. Well, we've like, got guys from Essex. They travel their way. It's a one-hour train journey. It's pretty damn simple. <laughs> it's, I haven't been to university in Sheffield. It's a very simple journey. No, Chris <laughs> now. So, um, yeah, perfect, mate. Um, I always end these things with um, uh, if you've got anything to kind of say to kind of like anyone kind of growing up in a situation like yours but it's different for you and it's probably the first time ever because usually people have the disability and they stick with it from their childhood to now obviously you've changed that um so i guess it's kind of a two pincers kind of question um, in terms of like what would you say to somebody who kind of had you know this leg that you had in your early childhood then then what would you say to somebody who had an amputation so kind of two questions within one there yeah i think like i'm i'm I don't know if lucky is the right word, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've chosen to be in this situation. So if you're comparing myself, a single leg above the knee amputee with another single leg above the knee amputee, if somebody had their leg taken from them for an accident, they might have quite a, a, a negative spin on their situation. I've got a very positive spin on my situation. I've chosen to be an amputee to actually better my way of life. 
So I'm very lucky in that sense. So again, that's kind of what I use my social media to kind of get that message out there that actually having one leg isn't that bad. You have a lot of options. You have a lot of opportunities that come your way, especially with the Paralympics, especially now with disabled people, you know, being in the media, being in the uh, you know, public eye um, on high street fashion or whatever. Um, I think, you know, my message to somebody growing up with a disability is that there is, there's so much inspiration out there now. You know, when I was growing up, up until 2012, there was nothing in the media that represented disabled people in a good way. You know, the only disabled people that I ever saw in the media was like people like Captain Hook. You know, he was an amputee, but he was a villain. You know, there's villains in uh, James Bond who are, you know, deformed or whatever. And they're, they're always bad people. And that was, that was how disability was represented. Um, but since 2012, it, it's really grown. It's really developed. You know, social media is fantastic. You know, all you got to do is put in, um, well, actually, my hashtag, one man, one leg, one mission. Put that in, mate. I'll give you some inspiration. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter, it's at Essex Lad Para and Instagram is at Essex Lad Paralympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some Essex Lad and a Paralympian. Farewell and we'll see you soon.